I was just asking what sort of audience do you normally get listening to your podcast? Oh, I think we've got one. One man and his dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are listening to the learning factory please develop a range of feasible excuses for listening welcome to the learning factory episode 11 11 i know 11 uh this this one goes up to 11 in a really <laughs> bad midlands accent this one goes up to 11. Here we are in acting up. Jesse, do you want to introduce our, our fantastic guests uh, who we had a nice chat with? Yeah, so this week, obviously, a couple of weeks ago, we had Andy on talking about PHE. And this week, we've got Glenn Fleury, who's a very experienced practitioner in NYP. Worked in Tanzania, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, and currently at the Diocesan School for Girls in, in New Zealand, where he's the NYP coordinator there. And shortly, he'll be off to Shanghai Community International School in Shanghai, where he's going, taking up the head of arts position nice. there. We had a great chat with, with Glenn. Yeah, normally, it's people like acting like they know what's going on. But no, he's, he's actually teaching the art of, of, of theatre studies and acting. That's, that's impressive and actually knows what he's talking about, as we're about to see. And we'll, we'll just give a warning to, to our, our listeners. Have a thesaurus ready. Because Glenn does use a few big words in some of his answers. Good chat. So let's um, let's see how that went. Well, welcome, Glenn. Nice to meet you. Um, yeah, thank you. So the whole point of today, I suppose, is to figure out um, what position performing arts is in, and how we can find a few similarities. Maybe get a few tips for design teachers. Maybe get a few performing arts teachers learning something from ourselves. God forbid they should do it as badly as we do, but um, we'll see what we can cross over with. Um, so what do you reckon in terms of like, we're all these kind of option subjects and we're kind of chucked off to the side as the noisy boys in the corner um, with music and arts and, and design off there. What do you think? Uh, what do you think of some of the similarities and, and maybe some of the differences between being a performing arts teacher and, and maybe what, what we're doing over in design or, or What's your experience with that? Yeah, like I think back in the, the good old days of the MIP when I first came um, across it in about 2002, I think, um, when we were at NIST in Bangkok, um, we had a much more clear sense, I think, in terms of the similarities between us and um, the design faculty in that you guys obviously had the design cycle. And back in the day, we used to have the, the creative cycle as well, which I don't know why they had the two things because they looked pretty much the same to me. And apart from a few extra things chucked into the creative cycle. And that, for whatever reason, has disappeared out of the arts um, arts guides. But I think it's very much that same idea is that we're both process-driven subjects. So we're more about uh, skills and um, those kind of processes and that we go through rather than the way we kind of approach things is probably quite similar in that way that we look at a, a problem or we look at a context or a, a provocation um, and then we use that as a way to look at um, why we might generate art, whereas you might use it as a, a, a way to find a solution to a problem that's, you know, in the either the digital or the product world. So we kind of have that as our way of working too. We have the provocation. We look at a, a way of responding to that through creating art, and then we evaluate and analyse that and respond to uh, feedback that we get from other people. We edit our work. We create a, an end product, which we then 
um, evaluate and, and we look at you know modifications or we look at how the consumer or the, the audience in our case might respond to that and um, use that as a way of reflecting on our own process and how we can do that better the next time. So I think probably in a lot of ways, there's quite a, a strong similarity in the way that we approach things to the way that you do in design. Yeah, one of the things that stood out for me there, as you were just saying it, you've got obviously the, the key element of performance there. I suppose in performing arts, that can often be sort of a one-off or a singular product that maybe is, is assessed on a, in, a, in an instance rather than maybe for, for product design or something like that, where it's, it's this, this continually, this, this physical thing that's being, that's being built. So do you, do you find that, well, is, first of all, is that, is that a, a fair analogy? And, and secondly, how do, you, how do you balance then the writing about performing arts as opposed to performing in performing arts and when it's only this singular thing maybe you're building to, or maybe that's incorrect? Yeah, I, I think those are really interesting questions. The first part, I think that um, we probably do have a singular outcome, but I think that is more that the very fact that it is the, the fact that that's the only part that the, the consumer or the, the audience actually views, whereas from the musician or the artist, even the visual artist point of view, it's about crafting that. It's about a lot of pre-ideas that they might come up with. It's testing those ideas, um, whether it's a performance or a composition, it's kind of developing that over time with feedback. And then the end product is the part that the audience sees, but they don't see everything that's come up until that point where we get the product. So while it might be a one-off outcome, I guess, in terms of a performance as such, um, a lot of it can have a lot of process that goes behind it. But in terms of the balance of writing and the artwork, look, I'm not going to tell you any lies. I would say that probably the majority of MYP arts teachers would say exactly the same thing, that the way that the current objectives and strands are worded, it probably alludes to the fact that a lot of it needs to be written down, which I think is a big problem in many ways for a practically based subject that a lot of what we're doing seems to be about writing about art rather than creating, performing and reworking art. So I think that's kind of an issue. I understand kind of to a point why they've done that with the design of the MYP objectives and the strands, but I think it's probably, it creates a bit of inequities because you can get a lot of kids that are great at writing and absolutely crap at performing who can achieve a lot better than kids that are the opposite. They're great performers and not so great at writing as uh, creative and artistic people often aren't. And they don't achieve as well because of the way the objectives are structured. So I think there's, it's hard to do that and find that balance. My hope and looking at sort of the development reports for the new arts guide, which is coming out in first time in 2022, I think it is. Um, they've done some, some reasonable addressing of that problem. I think they've done quite a bit to balance that up. So I'm looking at the, the new strands for a start. They've reduced the number of strands, which is great, because I'd say, I mean, you guys have a pretty shitty jo job as well. I mean, you've got four strands and all four of your objectives. So to try and cover that twice in a year, that's a, a mission and a half to try and do that without an over, you know, a feeling of over-assessing kids. So in the new arts guide, they've got each objective has two strands and that's it. And then they probably balanced it up so it's got more of a 50-50 feel. So 50% is it's probably more writing and 50% is more creating and performing. And they've also split um, the B and C, they've rechanged them so that B and C is gonna have uh, objectives and strands that are just for performing arts and the others are just for visual arts. So they're kind of separating that out a little bit, sort of distinguishing between the two, which I think is a really good move. So it'll be interesting to see how that feels when it comes out. Cool. Well, you're answering answering all the questions before I even ask them, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> you're prepared Sorry. extremely well. 
So of the <laughs> uh, of the strands, so like the strands that are currently there, and the, obviously the ones that are in place, did they get rid of the shit ones you don't like, or did they keep some of those? And what are they? I think they've done. I mean, they've really, really um, significantly changed. And so, for example, our A objective is knowing and understanding. That's now been changed into investigating. So a lot of what A with the knowledge and understanding tends to force teachers into doing things like learning vocabulary or doing little mini research things or case studies into a practitioner and things like that. And while that still seems to be present in the, the new objectives, I think it's more about linking it back to the statement of inquiry. So they're looking about... I guess, bringing back into the idea of where, what's the role of the statement of inquiry in your whole unit of work? Because oftentimes I think as teachers, we write these wonderfully crafted statements of inquiries, we might flash them up the board at the beginning of the, of the unit or whatever, and then they kind of fade off into the background and we never necessarily address them in any explicit way. So it seems to be that they're kind of gearing up with that. The B strand, as it is at the moment, I quite like that. I think that's probably, I mean, that's the, the part that's the most practical at the moment. So it's developing skills. And I think that one is one that uh, allows students to kind of, they have to show their acquisition of skills, so how they've gained musical or dramatic or artistic skills, and then how they've demonstrated them. So that's the two strands, and they've pretty much kept that. Um, so the new objective is called developing, but they've broken that into creating art and performing art. So they uh, focus more on the specific nature of those two things. The C objectives, as they are at the moment, is think creatively, a couple of those strands are reasonably straightforward. One of them is kind of a little bit nebulous. So they've got, currently they've got a strand um, that talks about creating a, a coherent artistic intention. And I think when you think and work through what that really is, it's about students kind of stating at the beginning before they create the product, what is their creative ideas? What do they intend to do? What do they want to communicate to the audience? Or what do they want them to think or feel? And putting that into some kind of statement, um, which is reasonably straightforward. And then exploring their ideas, which is the strand three um, of C through to an, um, a point of realisation. So essentially how have they um, taken their intentions through to a finished product and how did that change and why. The one that's a little bit nebulous in the middle is demonstrate a range and depth of creative thinking behaviours, which I kind of get the idea, but that's so broad and vague um, as to what creative thinking behaviours might be. I think probably a lot of teachers tend to shy away from that a bit. So now what they've got in the, the C is essentially one strand for either visual or performing arts. And that's basically present the realized performance to fulfill the intention. So that essentially captures both of the old strand one and three and just kind of smashes it into one strand. And I think that's actually a much better way to do it. And then the current strand uh, strands for D, again, some really strange and quite hard to work out things. So they've got things like construct meaning and transfer to a new setting or create an artistic response that intends to reflect or impact the world around them. So again, they're kind of quite almost social studies type things where they're having to look at how does the artwork kind of interact with the world around them or how does it transfer to other situations, which is fine. But um, again, kind of leads into a lot of written work. So now the, the D objective is just called evaluating. And essentially it's just looking at that, that idea of evaluating the extent that the artwork has fulfilled the artistic intention which kind of links your your b and your c strands together so b c and d essentially could link together into some things you might put in the process journal in the written form which reduces that and then reflect on the development of themselves as artists so that gets the nice 
kind of self-reflective part about how they're developing and growing as an artist. So I think from what I can see, they've kept the good parts, got rid of the things that are pretty um, hard to work out and vague. And for me, they've reduced them right down, which means in subjects like um, ours, which I'm sure you guys are the same, when you get a, a reduced amount of time to see the students, often anyway, you might have a semester course or you might have a less curriculum time to try and get through what we used to have to get through was almost impossible. So reducing that, I think, is making it a much easier thing for all the teachers to try and achieve. Yeah, right. So when you when you rock up to uh, Shanghai in August, Glenn, if you've got a, a brand new drama teacher working alongside you who is brand new to MYP and you know you've got 12 months with this set of criteria and strands, what's your advice to them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> look, I think the best thing to do is probably, uh, and what I would say to, to teachers when we're in the Category 2 workshops, it's about the way you design your assessment tasks and it's trying to find as many opportunities to couple as many of those strands together in one activity or one thing that you formative thing that you get the students to do or whatever as you can or even in a summative so that they've got less assessment events if you want to call them um, that rather than what a lot of teachers will try and do is work through those strands individually and try to find evidence for each one of those single things when you can potentially set a task where a student might give a written or a video or a verbal response um, where they can hit multiple strands of things. So for example, um, I'm a lucky job for me. So I've, for the first term, we're, we're just about a quarter of the way through our school year, had four music classes um, on top of my coordination role. And then because our head of faculty in the arts has actually left and we've had a bit of a shuffle around, I've had to hand those four classes over and this week pick up five drama classes. So Brilliant. I'm having to kind of almost start the year again. So, But some of the things, because we're a candidate school, and our teachers are still very new in terms of the understanding of how to do all this. Some of the things that I got handed over maybe were a little bit incomplete. So I'm going back and trying to plug up some of the gaps. So for example, a way of to try and combine strands in one task, I'm getting the students to, in my next lesson, to create a two minute little tutorial YouTube clip where they have to demonstrate one of the drama conventions they learnt last term. So that's a practical demonstration of, and that would be B1 and two. And also at the end of that, they then have to give a little you know, speech to camera in their group, everyone has to speak so they can all show their understanding. They have to basically outline and define what the convention was to show their understanding and also to be able to show how they might apply it. So in that you're hitting A1 and there's probably some aspects of C and D that you're kind of picking up in that one two minute little um, tutorial clip. And I think oftentimes teachers think, well, you know, if I'm doing a strand one, which is the, the knowledge and understanding and looking at subject specific vocabulary, I have to have three different examples of that throughout the, the unit of work to be able to make a decision. But I think the, the way that we do things with the process journal and the arts is trying to use all these formative engagements essentially to collect evidence. And then you read the process journal as a holistic document and then look at what angle have the students been able to address the objectives that you selected for the unit of work. And obviously that comes in part to the way that you design your learning engagements so that they've got opportunities to do those things as well. Just going back to what you mentioned at the start of there was you've got a lot of teachers coming in who don't have a lot of experience with the IB or the MYP. Do you, do you find that it's just a lack of experience when you're trying to marry together a national curriculum system for New Zealand or wherever you are, or, or is there, what, what, like what's, the, what's the biggest challenge when you're trying to bring something like the IB or MYP into a national curriculum school? 
I think the thing that our teachers have struggled with the most is probably the assessment piece. I mean, there are many levels of things that they've struggled with along the two and a half years that we've been doing it, right from the why the hell are we doing it at all kind of thing, um, <laughs> what's wrong with what we're doing, because, you know, our school, for example, is probably one of the top, top academic schools in the country, so they already have a very strong performance record, so they're thinking, why do we need to change that? So there's all those things that they've had to deal with, but I think also... It's been things like understanding the conceptual level because most national curriculums and ours will be included are very much that two-dimensional thing that, you know, Lynn Erickson talks about. So it's knowledge and skills all the way, but not a lot of connection to anything conceptual. So to try and get them to see how those things interact has been um, a journey. And we've done quite a lot of intentional PD with Rachel French. Um, I'm not sure if you know her, but she essentially took over the business from Lynn Erickson and Lois Lanning who are now in the 70s, and she sort of runs a lot of their workshops for them. And she also designed um, to go with that uh, some stuff of her own. So she's got a whole thing on concept-based inquiry. So marrying the idea of conceptual instruction with inquiry learning and, and looking at strategies of how you can do that. So we've invested quite a lot in professional development with our staff um, to really bring them to the point where they're seeing how that looks. And we're probably, I don't know, I might get fired or I might get banned from the IB altogether. We've done quite a bit to deviate a little bit from the augment, might be the better word, the MYP unit plan. Say so you completely threw it in the bin and messed it up. Okay, yeah, yeah, we butchered as much as we possibly could get away with. Because I think, and this is probably what it comes down to, when you look at the statement of inquiry in the unit of work, what you're essentially saying to the students is there's only one thing worth understanding this in this unit and this is it. And I think in a lot of ways, we're robbing our students of the, the opportunity to see that there's a lot of conceptual understandings in this unit of work that are worth approaching. And because of the way that we're, we're forced to create statements and inquiries with relating to the key and related concepts in the global context to come up with this statement that most teachers don't understand, let alone students, it's so mega, meta rather, that it, and so kind of transdisciplinary almost in nature that it actually is, doesn't really allude to anything that's discipline-based at all. So we've kind of gone from the angle of the way that Ericsson talks about it in their program and that we develop uh, five to nine conceptual understandings of the unit and we're looking at things which are, we use the, the required concepts we have to from the IB's point of view, but I get my teachers to add a whole bunch of other concepts. We do a lot of um, concept mapping and brainstorming at the beginning of their unit design where they'll just look at what concepts are already in subjects that we want to include in this unit what other concepts that we want to include in the suit that are not part of the IB's ones, and we'll add them all together, and they will develop a series of conceptual understandings, one of which then becomes the statement of inquiry because we have to comply with that. Teacher-generated statements of inquiry rather than you as the coordinator sort of dictating the format and the, the content of those. Absolutely. So we, we go through a process of, um, at the beginning of the unit, the way that we very first do it is I actually just get my teachers to do a brain dump, and I say, okay, what do you want the students to know? What do you want the students to do? And what conceptual understandings will that then form once you've done your concept mapping? And that's all generated by the teachers. But in the classroom, we use, um, we're encouraging our teachers to use an inductive approach rather than deductive. So we are actively discouraging our teachers from putting the statement of inquiry on the board and any other conceptual understandings because we want to, through the learning engagements and through the inquiry, allow the students to engage with those conceptual ideas. And so we unpack what the concepts are and we give them case studies where those concepts are evident um, and, and practical examples where they can see them work. And then we work through a process of how to write those conceptual understandings in their own words. 
And if they don't come up with the exact wording that I've come up, it doesn't really matter. And we'll then help them to critique and, and talk about those understandings to say whether they're true or not. And looking at those ideas of is this a universal understanding? Is it, is it across time and space and all those things that Ericsson talks about? And then we, we work through at the end of the unit trying to think, okay, we've come up with these understandings together as a, as a class. How do these transfer outside of our subject or within our subject? So we're kind of working through a sort of an inquiry model that Rachel French has created to kind of put all this together. So we've done that in a way so that once they come up with their conceptual understandings, that becomes essentially their lesson sequence. So they've got five to nine conceptual understandings. They might have five to nine phases or developmental stages of the units. Now, the problem with that is it doesn't necessarily fit hand in glove with every single subject in subjects like design, where you've got the design cycle that you have to work through, that becomes a little bit impractical. So we're modifying our expectations. We're not having a one size fits all and everybody must do the same thing. But we're trying to at least encourage people to have more than one understanding, which we call currently the statement of inquiry. Sounds like you need to have a, another drink of the Kool-Aid, Glenn. You, yeah. You're drifting <laughs> off the reservation a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, intentionally so. I, so I think when you dig down into it, and I, you know, I've read lots of blogs of you know people who are out there in the I, in the IB world and with the MYP talking about it. You know, and I think a lot of people find those kinds of design elements in the current MYP just don't really work the way that they're supposed to be. And look, in talking to Rachel French, who obviously knows Lynn and Lois very well, I think that when the MYP was first designed with the new next chapter, and they were using ex explicitly the work of Lynn and Lois to develop what we now have. I think it came to a, a crossroads of who owned what um, with intellectual property. And there was a parting of the ways that the, I guess the IB decided to streamline things to this kind of uniform thing that everything is the same, rather than taking some of the, the whole parts of the, the way that it was actually designed. So I, I've kind of just gone back and said, okay, well, what are the missing parts from what Lynn and Lois actually originally decided to do? let's fill in some of those blanks that make sense for us still within the MIP framework. It's amazing how um, people involved in progressive education can, can often be very, very rigid and say, this is the way it must be done. So important to get a bit of a, a bit of a refresher yeah. on that. Yeah. The whole national curriculum thing, I think, you know, some of the things that are challenging in a context of the IB outside of the international environment, which is obviously where my familiarity lies is that you forget how entrenched people become and also sometimes very browbeaten by, you know, educational politics within the country and things that they've been dictated to by a ministry or department of education, which in an international environment, you don't have to the same degree. And I think that becomes quite difficult and people come um, very shy and very, um, you know, not wanting to engage with change at all because it's just too hard and it's too much work. And they just become, you know, pragmatic and, you know, go back to default mode. Yeah, I think that's the case. Uh, that can often be the case in older international schools as well, though, I suppose. So just important to keep, keep, uh, keep fresh and keep current on, on, the, on different things. Please, yeah, that's what we need. Thanks. Imagine how stupid our audience are. Yeah. <laughs> so what's um, obviously a, a big sort of focus of, of this podcast is often for, for teachers that are new or um, 
or not sure what they need to be doing in an MYP setting and to give some ideas. So we've had we've had an episode in the past about units for rent, things that we think are, work well, good ideas. What are some of your favourite MYP um, performing art units? Yeah, I think the ones that I like the best are probably the ones which um, scare me the most, um, if that makes sense, because I think when I'm not sure what's going to happen as much as I maybe should, um, it actually allows the kids a lot more freedom for them to kind of go off in the directions that they like. And so the outcomes are often much more interesting because it's less teacher directed. And so I, I do a, a unit um, in drama, I think it's a grade six or seven unit called I Protest. And the kind of the drama part is looking at a particular practitioner, uh, Augusto Boyle, and looking at some of his techniques and stuff that he did to use drama as a way of you know, expressing protest ideas. But I do quite a lot of what they call teacher and role. So it's a, a, I guess it's a shared extended role play where we create a city together and everybody in the, in the city has a character and we develop a place where everybody lives and we develop this kind of you know, world that they all live in. And, I, and then there is a d- dictate from the government they're going to be uh, wanting to build a nuclear power plant in this particular town. And so I come in as the, the representative of the government and I, so I take a role through the process as well. And we kind of develop this narrative through the, the process drama of things that have gone wrong in the town. We sort of create this scenario where some people in the town are being forced to sell their houses and others don't. So there's kind of inequities there. And then some people get more money for the sale of the house than others don't. And so we kind of, through this process, the students are experiencing what it might be like to go through a situation where all these inequities are happening and building up to a point where in the story there's a big protest march to the city hall and then the the, the town police come out and they open fire and people get injured and there's all these things that happen and then we kind of hold the the role play there. The, the task the students then have to do is we jump forward 20 years into the future and those people in that story are now 20 years old and they're reflecting back on what happened that day of the protests and all the events that led up to it and they create a piece of drama of their own to um, express their opinions to talk about how it affected them, how their lives have changed for the better or the worst. And through that, looking at why you know, the protest was good, bad or otherwise. And so through that, we used also some of the, you know, the techniques from, the, from Augusto Boal just to help them to kind of formulate a piece of drama work together. But I found doing that, the, the kids are 100% engaged. They come, because we, we run the, the, the role play over a series of about three or four different lessons. So they walk into class I don't have to do anything to get them ready. They're straight into it. We, we set up the context of that day's events and the story. And then away they go. When they do the process journal, they're writing about the events as if they were that character in the story. So they're reflecting on things as a, as a character, but also as a, a drama student and kind of just switching backwards and forwards between those two things. And I think what they end up doing is something that they achieve my drama requirements, I guess, if you want to put it that way, but actually something which is really engaging for them and something they've had a lot of opportunity to shape because every time I do this with every different class it's completely different because the the characters and the the world that they create together yeah I'd give you a tip though don't try that one at your school next year in Shanghai it might be a bit too similar (laughs) to some you'll suddenly find that the real police come through the door and (laughs) shut the whole thing down yeah (laughs) that sounds awesome I come to your class tomorrow yeah yeah yeah, sure that's that's pretty cool. It's, uh, straight away, when you're thinking that, I'm thinking of loads of like connections and and different things like that between different subjects. And 
I was kind of had my IDU hat on how that fit into design. In terms of the, the that's the best thing that happened. What's uh, another focus of the, the podcast is um, figuring out it's all yeah. gone wrong. What are, what are some of the funnier moments? You're from New Zealand, Glenn. So when, is, when it's all gone to custard. Yeah. yeah, when it's all gone to custard. Oh, look, I think a lot of the times that's happened probably to be fair. Oh, not, no, not just in my music classes, but maybe more so in my music classes. It's when my expectations of what I think the kids can do is actually greater than what they can actually do. So I set a, you know, a unit and create this wonderful thing in my mind that's going to be amazing and epic. And with this outcome, I think the kids are going to be able to achieve. And then when I get into the class, I realize, oh, God, they can't do even half of that stuff. And but I'm committed to this unit, someone has to set through. So it ends up being a piece of crap. And so I've done things like um, in music where I've done a lot of it's revolving around songwriting, which is actually a pretty hard thing to do anyway. And half the time the kids can't play an instrument, let alone create a tune or know how to put it together into a song and they can't write words. And so I've done things where they write, you know, try and get them to write children's songs or trying to get them to write protest songs. And it just ends up being a disaster. And it's, it's probably a similar experience to you might have sometimes in design where you've got at the end of it all these products that you know are absolute crap but you've got to sit there and pretend that they're amazing sit through you know three or four periods of listening to these ridiculous songs um that you don't want to listen to the kids don't want to listen to and got to be all polite about it tape at the end of it and then you've got to mark them to somehow give them a grade that's you know better than a one or two because you can't <laughs> you know, destroy the little darling so it's you know all these things you've got to try and work your way through and I think oh, the, the idea of writing songs with, especially with the younger NYP students is something um, I have now learnt my lesson from and pretty much don't go near that unless I absolutely have to so um, yeah and I think probably a similar kind of thing with with drama when you try to get too early on and I know a lot of no um, you know dissing drama teachers too much but some of them get all head up about the different practitioners that you should know in the different schools of thought of drama and the ways that people do things but I think younger kids especially in the NYP don't care about any of that. They just want to come into, into class and have a bit of fun. So I think you've got to capture that. And I've done things where it's been really heavily scripted or I've tried to bring in some of these processes from Stanislavski and they don't even come and say the name, let alone, you know, care two hoops about his, his, his theories of the way the way that they do any of it. So I'm trying to sort of steer away from some of those things and really heavily scripted plays because it ends up being really terrible and most of the time they can't memorize the lines and half the you know especially ESOL kids they can't save the words in English um, let alone know what they're saying so I've tried to steer away from too much scripted stuff with the younger kids as well because I think that's more suited to when the kids have you know maybe got a bit older or at least they're choosing the subject which becomes an optional subject because they want to do it or they've got some skill at doing it rather than you know your general masses trying to wade through half a dozen one-act plays that are absolutely diabolical. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a vision of somewhere halfway between a, a primary school talent show and Phoebe from Friends in the coffee shop just making up random songs about cats. Yeah, yeah, smelly cat, yeah. What's your thoughts on the latest immediate implementation of uh, the performing arts and visual arts, how schools no longer have to offer both, they can just go with one? Do you think yeah. you'll see, will there be a, an impact on particularly drama or, or music? Look, if I'm being really blunt, I think that's probably come from your American schools. And again, um, no disrespect for any um, North American trained teachers that might be listening to this, but um, the North American tradition of music in particular is quite different from what you might experience in the UK or Australia, New Zealand, where it's more of a general music program. So your average American music program is band and choir 
orchestra and they learn that instrument and that's kind of it's a real performance um, focus. So my gut feeling, although nobody says it out loud, is that the reason why they've given those options is so that um, schools can kind of continue down that, that route they want to, um, rather than having to do a visual and a performing art. I mean, I think it has benefits in some respects because some schools just don't have the resources, especially national curriculum schools, I guess, to be able to run all of the arts programs that you might want to with a performing and a visual art. So I guess they maybe have to choose, but I think it also, it becomes a little bit problematic and that makes kids very narrow very early and they're only getting one aspect or one particular perspective on the arts and maybe it's limiting those kids that have some natural skills and abilities. And I guess schools will say, well, we don't need to do music or drama in school time. We can just do visual art because we're going to do the school production, which is great, but there's not a lot of actually explicit teaching going on there. That's just more the kids that are good at it get to get up and do it. Otherwise you get all those kids that can't sing, you chuck them to the choir and you turn the music up really loud. And so you can't hear them. And that's kind of how their experience <laughs> of musical drama might be. Oh dear. Yeah. I, I can see like them running maybe like the classic, like, ASA almost of, of band or you, you do your instrument in your own time, kid, we can't afford to do it. Is that the sort of attitude we're going for there in the in those public schools or state schools, whatever you yeah, call it? Yeah, and I think that maybe where, where it leads to it. And, and look, I mean, the other flip side of that is like there's another um, school in Auckland here that's currently um, in the candidacy. They're almost at the end of their, their phase um, of candidacy and going for authorization soon. And that, interestingly, imp- implementing a two-year MYP program and it will be the equivalent of grades eight and nine. That's just because of the way our silly school structures in New Zealand. We have middle schools that last for only two years and most we call them intermediates and they last for grades six and seven and then students go off to high school after that Um, and so they're implementing an MYP program with the first two years of the high school which is grade eight and nine. The problem for them when it came to try and put visual art and performing arts together, it just messed up their entire timetable structure with the options and it was gonna have actually quite a a negative impact on some of their um, other subjects, which were quite small in numbers anyway. Um, And because the kids were having to do a visual and a performing art. So for them, it was actually a huge relief. Um, So I guess, you know, in true IB style, I think they're creating an opportunity for it to be broad enough for everybody to engage with it. And then those schools that already do it like the school I'm at now we do four arts disciplines so we do music drama dance and visual art and we won't change that at all um so I think schools that always do it will probably continue to do it one more question here for you so what's your top tip for a a new teacher that's that's heading into the performing arts whether they are going into a like a well-established school like you're in now or if they're maybe going to a smaller international school where they're the only arts teacher there what, what's your number one tip? Um, like I think what I've appreciated, and you know, the, the, the IBN is the, obviously the, the, the ultimate of that, but I think networking is really important. I think it's important to realise wherever you are, you don't have to be a lone ranger. And it's important, if you, even if you're a well-established school like I am now, we're, we're a pretty well-off school, we've got great programmes that exist, or even if you're a, a, you know, a solo practitioner in your department, it's really important to have other people that teach what you teach that you can talk about and network with. And I know from looking in workshops when I when I have all the arts teachers in the same room, it's for, for many of them, that's just almost like a, I can actually talk to somebody that knows what the hell what I'm talking about. And I think they, 
they enjoy the three days more from just getting to talk to people that teach the same stuff and speak the same language as they speak in the art subjects than they do from any of the learning they get from me as the workshop leader. And I, to be honest, that's kind of what I, lo I like to create and promote a lot of in the workshops I run, you know, just that networking and talking about things from a subject point of view. So I think that my top tip is just, there's lots of opportunities to do that, you know, through the program communities or find out what your local, uh, you know, IB or MYP or PYP or DP network is and get involved, reach out to teachers as much as you can and just start to talk. And obviously with, you know, technology now with Zoom and all the rest of it, it's much easier to do that in a face-to-face -face kind of way rather than just emailing backwards and forwards or whatever it is. So I think that's probably my top tip. That's probably one of the things that I had benefited myself the most. Uh, particularly through the IBM network, just being able to meet with people that are like-minded, you know, doing different things, but the same things and really being able to sort of have that great sort of discussion backwards and forwards. Sounds right. Well, thanks for uh, coming on today, Glenn. It's been really good to have a chat about the performing arts and your lack of love for the Kool-Aid. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we love to hear. Yep. Absolutely. Time for me to go have something cold and brown. Thanks for that, Glenn. And um, we'll talk soon. That was a good chat. He knows what he's talking about. He probably knows more about MYP and, and performing he does. arts than he I does. will ever know about yeah, anything. He, <laughs> he had some really good, I guess, thoughts about the the new guy that's coming out for the arts in a couple of years and where they're starting to consider about the, the differences between visual arts and, and the performing arts. And it is quite difficult to just have one set of criteria for those. So yeah. even the idea of like, one size fits all, four criteria, four strands um, is, is starting to change, which is encouraging for us as well. See what happens. Yeah, with that's right. Where they've, they've sort of come full circle where, you know, eight years ago, they decided, bang, we're all, everything's going to go to four, four. And, and now there's a few little changes. But I also like that, I, you know, what he was talking about, about not, not selling his soul to the MYB and, and sort of foregoing other things as well. But really taking the essence of what MYP is about that whole conceptual understanding and, and running with it and not limiting it just to the, those three concepts, three or four concepts that are linked to each subject area, but really utilizing as many as, as you think are appropriate for that, for that particular unit. Yeah. You sometimes get in an international setting, you get people who are like, they're super into the IB because they're international and they're, they're, they're they kind of chose to be in there but it might be refreshing in a way to have people who are in a national curriculum school and they're going, hold on, why are we doing this? And it forces you to take a look at, oh yeah, why are we doing this? And you can actually go, oh, here's the, the big conceptual stuff we're trying to do, not just Yeah, and that's it. That's what, and sometimes you need that, don't you? You need someone to come in because you, know, you, you just get yourself in a rhythm and you do it because that's, that's the way we do it, sort of thing. So yeah. it is a good process to go through and sometimes you might say well what we are doing is actually yes one of the things i really liked was the fact that like jamming as many criteria as you can into the one task that's something i am massively in favor of yeah, and that's something we've talked about too. I mean, look at the the, the famous photo, Dave, with all the strands in. Oh, the photo. Like again. where we're trying to get as many to one thing, just for the kids to then be able to make that recognition as to what the strands are. But I think also doing it that way can allow for teachers then to, to get a better understanding of what the strands actually 
asking you to do. Yeah, it's not 16 isolated tasks. It's actually building towards something. All right, so let's have a look at the, the, the learning factory calendar, the big chalkboard in the corner that we have here hanging up. Um, oh, well, there's been a few more um, properties listed on the market, so we might go and see what else is for rent. Sweet. I hope one of them has a pool because uh, it's bloody roasting here coming into the summer. There is no summer here. What am I talking about? It's always hot. Uh, yeah, let's talk about some, some more units for rent. Um, and we can we can maybe explore some more more in-depth stuff maybe uh give you some more ideas if you're if you're sitting around over the summer holidays and you're one of these people who likes to generate units and work over your holidays you can you can have a look at that and uh, we give you some maybe some things you can annoy your colleagues with maybe some interdisciplinary units etc etc so uh tune in next week and we'll we'll see what's on the market for that good day happy days see you later been listening to the learning factory thank you for your attention end of recording